As you're turning to Hebrews 5, let me just review for a moment. Uh, Some of you were not able to be here last Sunday evening. It was a very important discussion at the end of Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verses 14 through 16. So uh, as I'm talking here for a moment, you can look down at those verses in your Bible and consider them. Uh, When we got last Sunday evening to Hebrews 4.14, we came to a new section. Remember, the book is laying out as... Uh, you have a section of doctrine and then a strong warning. Doctrine, warning, doctrine, warning. The author of Hebrews is like a preacher. Uh, maybe you remember hearing an old preacher who would get wound up occasionally. Uh, I remember some, hearing some evangelists when I was younger, and they, I mean, they would, when they got going, you know, it was just like a steam ball, you know, so just, just rolling, rolling. And then they would kind of come back, establish their truth from Scripture, look at what the scriptures say, and then they would start making application and exhort again, and you'd feel the intensity rise. The author of Hebrews is like that. Five times, he starts with doctrine. He roots it in the text of scripture. He roots it in Old Testament scripture, and he demonstrates what he believes concerning Jesus Christ, and then he warns, he exhorts. As we came to 414, we came to a new doctrinal section, the third major doctrinal section in the book. And the main topic of this doctrinal section that goes from Hebrews 414 through 510 is the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. In verses 14 through 16 at the end of chapter 4, he gave us some important information about Jesus as our high priest. He said that he, uh, Jesus, has passed through the heavens to sit at God's right hand. He also says in those verses that this high priest, Jesus, is able to sympathize with us in our human weakness, for he was human himself. Now, because these things are true, the author then uh, challenges us to respond in two ways. In verse 14, he says, because this is true of Jesus, you should hold fast to your profession of him, to your confession of him. Don't walk away from your confession of him, but hold fastly to it. And then he says in verse 16 uh, that we should respond uh, by drawing near to the throne of grace with confidence. You were here last Sunday evening. I said that drawing near to the throne of grace is, I, I believe, a metaphor for prayer. It's a metaphor for the boldness and the frankness or freedom of speech that we should feel as followers of Jesus to go before him and ask him for help. So that when we pray to Jesus, we can say things like this. Jesus you experienced this same temptation that I'm feeling right now. Yet you never sinned. So, Jesus, give me mercy and grace and timely help to overcome this temptation or trial by the glory of God. So if you're here last Sunday night, we focused on the fact that when you're in the middle of a temptation, you can pray straight to Jesus who felt that temptation like you did, but Uh, who never surrendered, never surrendered to sin. So we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace and, and ask to receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Today, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, the author will further develop his discussion 
of Jesus as a high priest. He's continuing the doctrinal section. More particularly, the author intends to tell us why. You can see that in the very first word, for every high priest, for. He's telling us why we should hold fast our profession of Jesus Christ and why we should feel freedom to go before his throne of grace. And so as, as we work through this, he uh, will tell us why we should do so, and he does so by comparison. He compares in these verses, verses 1 through 10, the high priesthood of Jesus to the old covenant high priest. That's how uh, he's going to work through this material. Okay, and so uh, as we go through this section, uh, he, the author will examine the qualifications of two candidates for the high priest, old covenant high priests and Jesus. Now let's just remember the original readers, Jewish readers, that the author is addressing here. When they think of high priests, they think of a literal, physical Jewish high priest who was in Jerusalem. They're thinking of a living, breathing person who they believe was appointed by God to lead the people of Israel into sacrifice and worship. And so these Hebrews might have in mind a man like Ananias. Ananias, the high priest who ruled in Jerusalem through much of the 40s and 50s. Ananias is the one who will issue verdicts over Paul the apostle in Jerusalem and his, his well-being. Ananias, uh, by all uh, testimony in first century literature, Ananias was a very arrogant man. And he was violent in many of his choices, yet the, the children of Israel in the first century greatly revered him because he was God's high priest. If these readers aren't thinking of Ananias, they might be thinking of Phanias, Phanias ben Samuel, who ruled in the 60s AD. Phanias was the 83rd descendant from Aaron, the, great, the first high priest. Phanias was the last Jewish high priest who ministered in a very volatile time through the 60s. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is, you need to make a choice. You need to make a choice between Jesus and Ananias, or Phanias, the high priest in Jerusalem. And the choice that they make is very important. Because the one you choose will be the one who represents you before God. You know, in some elections that we have, uh, the choice is not always abundantly clear uh, for which choice is better, which candidate is better. Sometimes, even in our presidential elections, it feels like when we're choosing, we're choosing between the lesser of two evils. So, you kind of reason your way through the decision, and you see if... if if you can even choose one of the candidates, or you do research into a third option uh, and you decide to vote for this person, although you realize they have no realistic chance of winning. In some cases, when you have candidates, you have to choose between the lesser of two evils. However, that's not the case with the choice that the author of Hebrews lays out here. No, one of the two is beset with weakness and sin, clothed with weakness and sin. The other is full of strength, 
And so I want to work through this with you. Uh, the outline's very simple. It's a two-point outline, uh, verses 1 through 4 about the Old Covenant high priest, and verses 5 through 10 are about Jesus as the high priest. So look with me in your Bibles at verse 1. It says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is clothed with weakness, beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself or for himself for only when called, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. Here, these first four verses are about the high priests of the Old Covenant system uh, found throughout much of the Old Testament scripture. I think that the author emphasizes three things about these Old Covenant high priests. He first emphasizes in verse one their appointment. Their appointment, look again at verse one. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Here in verse 1, the author uses two passive words, one a participle and one a verb, to emphasize or describe the appointment of the Old Covenant high priest. They were chosen, or being chosen, that is the participle, and they were appointed. Now by using passives, he uh, wants us to think, he's implying that you know, someone set them up this way. Someone chose them, someone appointed them, and by the time you get to verse 4, you find out exactly who it is that chose them and appointed them. It was God. God, throughout the old covenant system, was the one choosing out of men and appointing the high priests of Israel. And the purpose for their selection is found in verse 1 as well. You see, the purpose there is, is clear. They're to offer gifts and sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. And uh, you can read all about that in the Old Covenant, Old Testament Scripture, like in Leviticus. You see all of the sacrifices and offerings and the, the, the uh, covenant sacrifices, the Old Covenant system throughout the Old Testament. So that's the appointment. God appoints and selected Old Testament, uh, Old Covenant high priests. But then in verses 2 and 3, you come into what I think is uh, the driving reason why the author of Hebrews would have us think about these Old Covenant high priests, and that's, that's when you see their weakness. Their weakness in verses 2 and 3. According to verse 2, the high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. And uh, that's a good thing. When he says he can deal gently with, that means the Old Covenant high priest, whether it was Aaron or one of those 83 men who followed him, were able to curb their emotions. They were, they were able to moderate their feelings about all the sinners around them. And the reason they're able to do this is because they themselves were also subject to weakness. Now before we talk about their weakness, I just want to point out in verse 2 how the author describes all the people that they helped. Look at verse 2. He can deal gently with two classes of people, the ignorant and wayward. Okay, I love those two classifications because I think what the author of Hebrews is saying here, uh, the, the old covenant high priest could deal gently with two types of people, both those who commit intentional sin and unintentional. 
unintentional and intentional sins, which is all of them. Okay? So he can deal gently with all of them because he himself is beset with weakness. Beset with weakness. As a consequence then of his own sinfulness, verse 3 tells us that he was responsible to offer sacrifices not only for the sins of the people, but for his own sins. That is, the priests were daily offering sacrifices for their own sins and the sins of the people. I want to just take a momentary glance at what this would be like for people under the Old Covenant. By considering what high priests would do on the annual Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was an important celebration that uh, the Israelites would observe every year. So let's consider what a high priest would do on that day. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would stand and put his hand on a sacrificial bull and a sacrificial goat, the entrance of the tabernacle or or, uh, temple, And he would offer up three prayers to God. The first prayer was for the sin of the high priest himself and his immediate family. The second prayer that he would pray would be for the sins of the high priest and the other priest of Israel. And the third prayer that he would pray would be for the sins of the rest of the people of Israel. So the author of Hebrews reminds his readers that the Jewish high priest was not above reproach. He was not sinless. Now, Having said that, I want you to think, though, about the situation of these first readers. And what was Jewish understanding of the high priest regarding his sinfulness in the first century? For this, I draw testimony from a a Jewish rabbi by the name of Philo. Okay, now, this is not Fido the dog, okay? So we get this right, not Fido the dog, this is Philo, a Jewish rabbi. I actually had to write a chapter on Philo, not Fido, Philo, uh, for my dissertation, okay? Philo was a Jewish rabbi who lived in Alexandria, Egypt. He was a contemporary of Jesus and Paul. He lived during, he overlapped their lives. The end of Jesus' life and Paul's life. Well, Philo suggested that the high priest's humanity was suspended entirely when he offered sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. That is what this Jewish teacher taught and believed was that at, the mo- at that moment annually, the high priest was indeed sinless. The high priest, however, according to the author of Hebrews, was not sinless. Under the old covenant, he was beset with weakness and needed to sacrifice to God for his own sins too. That's how I'd summarize verses two and three. The weakness of thy priest. Remember what they're doing. The author of Hebrews is lining up two high priests. Are you going to choose Ananias, Phineas, or Jesus? And he's talking about Ananias and Phineas. He said, they're beset with weakness. They're full of sin. They have to offer sacrifices for themselves. That leads to the last thing he'll say about them. Verse four, the calling of old covenant high priests. 
uh, and says not to undermine them completely. Verse 4, he says, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Old covenant high priests were called by God. Their calling came initially in the selection of one man. His name was Aaron, and you've probably heard of him. Uh, Aaron in the Old Testament. God made his selection of Aaron clear. If you remember in Numbers 17, we actually read this not too long ago. He made it clear. Um, There were just some priests that God wiped out by the name of Korah. And there was a rebellion. And so God had to start over with priests. And so uh, he made his selection of Aaron clear by uh, making Aaron's staff come to life again. Can you imagine that? laying down an old wooden staff, and then it starts shooting out buds and growing again. That's how God made the selection of Aaron and his descendants clear. They would be the priests. Aaron would be the first high priest of the children of Israel. So, so, so this is, I, I think, a brief history that he gives here of the appointment, weakness, and calling of Old Covenant high priests. Now, the author discusses these Old Covenant high priests, I think, to use them as a foil or a contrast against what he really wants to talk about. And so in verses 5 through 10, he talks about Jesus as a high priest. For the rest of this whole paragraph, verses 5 through 10, which is actually, uh, believe it or not, uh, in the original, it's one sentence. Okay, the ESV translators, I think they gave up on that one sentence thing. They put it in four sentences. But it's one sentence originally which talks about Jesus as a high priest. So I want you to look with me at the three ways the author describes Jesus as our high priest. Verses 5 and 6, he talks about the appointment of Jesus as a high priest. Look at verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now in order to proclaim that Jesus was selected by God and appointed by him, just like the old covenant high priest, what the author of Hebrews does is he anchors this all in a divine statement. And he has God speaking again. He did this in chapter 1. God was saying words about the Son. Here he's going to say some words about the high priest. And so what he does is he quotes from two psalms. First, he quotes from Psalm 2 and then from Psalm 110. And I want to point a few things out about these citations. Uh, First here, the author has already quoted from Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Uh, It was interesting to me as I was doing research this week to see, you know, you got two quotations here. He quotes from the same exact passages, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, in chapter 1. And in chapter 1, they frame his entire discussion about the, the, the deity and the sonship of Jesus. Psalm 2, 7, he quotes at the beginning, he is the son of God. Uh, he says, this day I have begotten you. And then at the end, he quotes Psalm 110 to declare that Jesus is the son. In this passage, however, it's about his priesthood. He quotes these, he frames his discussion about Jesus' appointment as a priest with these texts. Now, it's a little bit confusing to me, at least, about how he does this. Okay, so you're looking in your Bible, you're paying close attention, trying to figure this out, right? You're looking at verse 5 again. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he's appointed by him who said to him, first quote, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
Okay, the reason this was confusing to me, and the reason I really struggled with this uh, uh, most of the week was, you know, as I read Psalm 2 and verse 7, I wonder what that has to do with the priesthood. Okay, so the author of Hebrews is trying to prove that God, he, uh, he uh, installed Jesus as a high priest, and he quotes Psalm 2, 7. You are my son, this day I have begotten you. And I ask you, what does that verse have to do with priesthood? Okay, if you go back to Psalm 2, you would see that it's a psalm about Jesus being a son and being installed as a king. It's not about being a priesthood. Uh, not about him being a priest. So, uh, you know, this whole week I've been perplexed, so I'm going to leave you perplexed here for a while. Um, and then, you know, so when I don't know the answer to things and they're really bugging me, sometimes I'll run to the commentaries, and the commentaries weren't helpful here at all. They like, didn't even deal with the question. I'm like, you know, this psalm's about him being a son, so why is the author of Hebrews using it to establish the priesthood of Jesus? Well, I think the answer to that is found in the next citation, the second citation, I think can help us here, where the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 110.4. Okay, so again, you're looking in your Bible. Thank you for paying close attention. Look down in your Bible again at verse 6. He says in another place, quote, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And there, I'm like, yes, a verse about a priest. Jesus being a priest. Psalm 110 is an extremely important Old Testament uh, uh, text. It is the most frequently quoted psalm or text, chapter, whatever you want to call it, in the entire New Testament. The authors of the New Testament keep going back to Psalm 110. In verse 4 of that psalm, God is speaking, and he speaks to a future Messiah. And he declares to the Messiah that he would be a priest forever after the order of an obscure Old Testament figure. The Old Testament figure's name is Melchizedek. Uh, don't look down at your Bible, but try to spell that for me, would you? Melchizedek. I usually spell it this way, M-E-L-C-H period, uh, because I don't know how to finish that. Melchizedek. Okay, who's Melchizedek? Well, Melchizedek is only mentioned in two Old Testament texts. He's mentioned in Psalm 110, that verse I just read, and he's also mentioned in the book of Genesis. And it's back in Genesis that we learn a little bit about Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a figure who came and interacted with one of the patriarchs of Israel by the name of Abraham. And after a battle, Melchizedek comes to Abraham. They interact, and we find this out about Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a king. But he was also a priest. And so Abram responds in meeting Melchizedek by uh, paying tithes, giving money to Melchizedek, the king priest of the Most High. Because we don't know much about Melchizedek, but we know Abraham paid ties to him as a man of God, a representative of the Most High. And then we know that Melchizedek gave a blessing to Abraham. We'll learn more about Melchizedek as we go throughout the rest of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews has much to say about Melchizedek. And so when we get in later chapters, we'll learn about, about that. But this time, I think it's at least important to note 
that we should observe that he functioned as both a king and a priest. And I think it's understanding the nature of Melchizedek's king-priest position that the citation from Psalm 2-7 becomes more understandable. The author quotes Psalm 2-7 because Jesus is not a priest in the line of Aaron and the Old Covenant priest. Instead, he is a priest in the likeness of Melchizedek, a king-priest of the Most High God appointed by him. So Psalm 2-7 is about his installation as a king. Psalm 110-4 is about his priestly reign. Okay? So that's the appointment of Jesus as high priest. Then look with me at verses 7 through 9 at his strength. Okay, so if you notice, my outline is very similar in both points. You said the old covenant high priest, they were appointed by God. Jesus was appointed by God. Then the old covenant high priest, they were filled with weakness. Not Jesus, he's full of strength. I want you to see his strength. Look with me at verse 7. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Here in verse 7, the author of Hebrews speaks of things that happened in the days of Jesus' flesh. That is, when he was still on earth as a human being. During these days, the author of Hebrews says that, he, that Jesus prayed out to his Father with loud cries and tears. Now, unfortunately, he doesn't tell us exactly what instance he's talking about, or if he's talking about you know, Jesus' life throughout his existence, where he's crying out to God with loud tears and cries. Uh, many people think that this is describing Jesus' prayer in the garden. Jesus' prayer in the garden when he... he uh, sweats uh, drops of, as if it were drops of blood pouring his heart out to God, asking for the cup to pass from him. Some people think that this could also include his prayers that he prayed while on the cross. But it is of interest, though, to see what Jesus prayed for in these moments. And, and Hebrews tells us, I think, or at least implies that Jesus is asking for God to save him from death. He cries out to the one who could save him from death, meaning that he's asking God to deliver him from the pain and the anguish of being separated from him in death. Now, it's also helpful as you keep reading in verse 7 is to notice what the author says about Jesus during this time. He says that as Jesus is pouring his heart out to God with loud tears and cries, praying to the one who could save him from death, it says that he was heard by God because of uh, his reverence. That is, even, even while Jesus was asking to be delivered from the pain and the anguish of death, he did so with reverence or reverential awe to the Father and submission to his will. I think that leaves us with one important question here in verse 7. And that is, in what, sense, in what sense, then, was Jesus heard by God? Okay, so Jesus is crying out to God. He, he's crying out to the one who can save him from death. And the text says that God heard him. I think one author summarizes this really well. I couldn't do any better than this. He says the verb here, the word heard, 
is stronger than to hear in the sense of something registering orally, you know, just someone just hearing it. It suggests a responsive hearing. God, therefore, responds positively to Jesus' prayer because of his reverence. But that kind of left me with like this question, okay? So if we're talking about the gardener and the cross and Jesus is crying out to the one who could save him from death, this text says that God heard him. He responded positively to it. How could that be true? Because Jesus died. I mean, how is this true? And I think, I think the, the only answer to that is that God heard him and Jesus experienced God hearing him three days later when the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead and he overcame it. God responds positively to Jesus' prayer and he does so because Jesus is reverent even in those moments when he's about to die. But then we look at verses eight and nine. Look in your Bible at verse eight. It says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. We'll keep going here for about another five minutes or so, but as we get into this part of the text, we see another demonstration of the strength of Jesus as a high priest. For even when things were really bad, he still showed reverence, verse seven. And in this passage, we can learn his strength with the two main verbs. It says, he learned obedience, that's the first main verb, and the second one is, and he became. So since Jesus learned obedience, he became the source of something really powerful. We'll see that in just a moment. I want to look first, though, at this phrase. He, he learned obedience uh, through what he suffered. Again, honestly, this is a difficult concept here to grasp. So I came to this verse, uh, I often come to this verse and I think, you know, how could Jesus learn anything? Like, is there something he doesn't know? Or how could he be made perfect? Isn't he already, before becoming flesh, mature, or perfect? I'll do my best to try to explain that to you here. It seems what the author is stressing here is not that Jesus was incomplete. It was not that he was ever disobedient or lacking in obedience in some way or another. That's, that wouldn't stand for the author of Hebrews. Instead, he is stressing, I believe, how Jesus' physical life on earth enabled him to learn what human obedience was like through personal experience. And so in Jesus' physical existence, he did learn something. He learned what it was like for human beings to face suffering, pain, anguish, and death, and to do so by submitting to the will of God. One author said it this way. He said, Jesus had to respond moment by moment and therefore learn obedience precisely in and through the stress and pain generated by constantly allowing his present understanding of God and God's will to be challenged by the circumstances of his everyday life. To get that, I know it's a long paragraph, but Jesus learned that, folks. 
Ultimately, when God called Jesus to die, Jesus had to overcome the most powerful of all human instincts, the instinct toward self-preservation in order to hear that will of God and to do it. So Jesus learned what human obedience was like through suffering and pain and anguish while under the control of the Father. This is very similar to what Paul says about the the days of Jesus' flesh in Philippians chapter 2 when he says uh, that he became obedient. Okay, He became obedient to death even death on the cross. Paul's not implying that there was a time when Jesus was disobedient. No, he's saying that in his humanity, there came a time when he surrendered, he came under, and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so here what we learn about our high priest is he he experienced what it was to be faced with difficulty, trial, suffering, and death. And he faithfully obeyed in all of those circumstances rendering control of his life over to God. That's just following the text, right? We're text people. You just keep going down to verse 9. So thus, learning obedience through suffering, he was perfected. And the text says, and he became, second verb, he became something. He became the source of eternal salvation to those who would obey him. Again, when, when he says he was perfected, I think that that's, that's describing the qualifications of Jesus as a priest. We talked about that in Hebrews 2. And so because of his humble obedience and suffering, Jesus was qualified as a high priest and he was able to bring about something, to accomplish something. And what he accomplished is eternal salvation for those who would obey him. That is, what this high priest in his strength is able to deliver is permanent deliverance for those who would profess him. This deliverance from Christ to salvation is permanently valid. I mean, you cannot lose this. This is not dependent on the life of a temporal priest. This is not, this salvation is not dependent on a failing religious system or a host of daily regular sacrifices that you have to keep on offering. No, this is only true for those who follow Jesus. This is only true for our great high priest Jesus. I do want you to notice one last thing about this, verse 9. Look, look in your Bible. It says, in being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation and then that last phrase, to all who will obey him. I think it's very important for you to, to, to know that the Bible does not teach what some people say that it teaches. Some people think that the Bible teaches universalism, that all people will eventually make it to heaven. But that is not what the Bible says. It does say that all people people are dead in trespasses and sins. That is, every person is a sinner. And left to himself or herself, he will die and go to hell to pay the price for those sins. But this text is one of a host of texts 
that show us that there can be deliverance. Here it's eternal deliverance. It says that Jesus, the great high priest, offers eternal salvation for all those who would obey him. Not everyone. For all those who would obey him. And so as we close here today, I ask you, have you decided to line up behind Jesus as the Lord of your life? Have you ever declared to God that you believe that Jesus died for your sins and that God raised him from the dead? There is one last point to make in verse 10, and that is the calling of Jesus as a high priest. This is being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Here we finally learn that God designated Jesus as a high priest in Melchizedek's order. Since Jesus was not from the line of Aaron, he did not descend from the Aaronic high priest, but he descended from Judah, he was not qualified to serve as a Levitical high priest. Instead, he was appointed by God as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, a man qualified to serve as both a king and a priest. I think when the author of Hebrews uses the word order here, it means something like likeness, which makes better sense here. Jesus did not come from the line of Melchizedek. He did not descend from him, but he's just like him in his priesthood. So men and women today, I proclaim to you the great high priest of heaven, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate high priest who abides or remains today in, in strength. There is no weakness in him. No sin in him. He always lives to make intercession for you. And he is the only priest that you will ever need. Won't you turn to him today for eternal salvation and join with a host of people who will obey him? And Christian brother and sister in the Lord, won't you cling to your profession of this great high priest who can sympathize? Yes, he was simpler, sinless, but he can sympathize with your weakness and he can help you. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to work through this text of Scripture today. Lord, there's, there's much in this passage. It uh, lines up Jesus next to high priests of the old covenant system. Lord, I know that we could line up things alongside of Jesus as well. I pray and trust today that if there is anyone under the sound of my voice that does not know Jesus as their Savior, they cannot say that they strive to live in ways to obey him, that they would turn to Jesus. I pray that your spirit would convict them over sins right now, and I pray that they would, they would declare to you that they believe that you sent Jesus and that you enabled Jesus to rise from the dead for their sins. Lord, I pray as well for believers. I pray that we would cling closely to Jesus. It's so easy to hear the preacher 
go through a long text about Jesus and to grow complacent or to not really engage. But Father, I pray that this morning my brothers and sisters in the Lord would rejoice in the great Savior that we have and run to him for timely help and temptation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.